it is the greatest honor of anyone's life to go into another culture and language and learn from those people as their disciple. And you cannot limit a priori what you're going to learn. You have to be open to learning everything and even things you don't know today how to apply. So I would say that to be a linguist is to be a field researcher. I have a very narrow view of this. And to me, a linguist is somebody who can walk with paper and pen into a never before studied language and come out six months later with a grammar. And if you can do that, even though it's a bad grammar, and it will be a bad grammar, uh, you're a linguist. And if you can't do that, you're something else. That's my very narrow view. But I would sell, say if you have the chance to do field work, take it as the honor that it is. Um, and I've had the experience of taking people to the field for the first time who are today good field workers who did see it that way. And I've also taken a lot of people who found it too hard, too time consuming, and um, not the way they wanted to spend their free time. So, and I would say for every one that's been successful, there've been, you know, eight to 10 that haven't been. Uh, it's not for everybody, but I think that it's vital to science and vital to understanding ourselves as a species. Welcome to The Story of Language, an original podcast series about language, linguistics, cognition, and culture. My name is Christian Saunders, and I'm an English teacher, and throughout this series I will be in discussion with Dan Everett, linguist, anthropologist, philosopher, and author. In this episode, we talk about the theory and the practice of field linguistics, including how to survive in the field, what to take, and what to bring back. If you would like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Story of Language, or you can send us an email at storyoflanguage at gmail.com. This is episode 5 of The Story of Language. Today we're going to talk about field linguistics and like what it is and how to do it properly. And because I know that you, you've spoken previously about how, you know, living in these kind of harsh environments, you're, you've developed a kind of toughness. Well, not developed, you, you, you just describe yourself as a kind of hardy, tough person. And, and it reminds me of, of this story I read about the film director, Steven Spielberg. And he said that before he makes any movie, he spends like three months at the gym, on the treadmill, getting fit. Because he said that doing the work of making a movie is really hard and, you know, you need to be in shape. I mean, is it, do you think it's the same for, for field linguistics? Yeah. You know, I mean, when I was uh, doing it regularly, I, uh, I worked out all the time, uh, not just before, but during. You know, we had an airstrip and I would run on the airstrip or, um, you know, in the summer months, long, long beaches come out. You can run on the beaches. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's physically demanding. And, and when you go from just a university, for example, down to the middle of the Amazon, 
and the temperature increases, the humidity increases, uh, the physical demands. I mean, I remember going to the doctor one time. I had carried, um, I was used to carrying lots of heavy things up banks, and I carried this 120-pound bag of grain and, and some other stuff up this bank, and I was out of breath for a while. So I told the doctor, and we did all these tests, and he's, he said, uh, you know, all I can tell you is that anybody's going to have a, be out of breath carrying 120 pounds up bank, but, because uh, I did the treadmill test and he got my heart up to the maximum that he wanted it to go. And it was back down to 55 and two minutes um, at the time. But um, I'm not in the same shape now, but uh, I still am, you know, it is demanding and you have to be prepared for the demands of field work. Um, and there's a lot of, you can do field work without a lot of physical strength, but the physical strength and the endurance um, always are useful. Yes. Well, I, I imagine they are, especially if you're going to some of the more kind of hostile environments, right? Like maybe, you know, hot, humid, or, or maybe even really cold places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where you have a, you have a, to do a lot of things that require endurance, like hauling water for your family or, um, you know, wa walking long periods through the snow, uh, you know, the physical, actual field research um, in isolated places is demanding of your entire being. It's holistic. It's from your personality to your mental abilities and your ability to learn quickly to your physical conditioning and strength. Well, b before we actually talk about specifically about what it's like to go in the field and, and, you know, what you should do when you're there, I wanted to talk a little bit about the philosophy behind doing field research, because I know that you've mentioned before that, that now the, you, you feel that the field of linguistics is too specialized. And, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, in the, in the 50s and 60s, there was much more of a crossover between things like anthropology and linguistics or psychology and linguistics. So how do you, how do you see field research as, as fitting into the, the study of language? Well, um, I mean, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, when I say that the field is over-specialized, I mean something along the lines of a paper that I gave a few years ago at the uh, British Academy on uh, the so-called cognitive revolution. And I said that a lot of the, uh, a lot of what we think we've learned over the years is the result of reification of the field and, and whittling it down smaller and smaller. On the one hand, that's necessary. So the immediate response of somebody is, well, of course, we have to specialize. You can't go deep if you just are looking at things from a general perspective all the time. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't explore deeply. I am saying that we should do it in a way that all of the knowledge is contextualized and we understand how it sort of fits together in the bigger picture. Um, so experiments that show that construction A or construction B are more likely to be found only makes sense to me if you, if you, after you've done your experiments, you step back and you look at the language and the culture as a whole, 
and ask how this all blends together. You know, I'm always, as you know, skeptical about claims for universals. I do not deny that there are universals. Actually, the, uh, well, we could talk about that at some other point, the difference between universals and generals. And, and isn't there also a difference between maybe linguistic universals and cognitive universals? Yes, there are. I mean, there are some people like uh, uh, Bill Croft, uh, who does radical construction grammar, um, who are who tries to argue that a lot of, or maybe all, um, so-called linguistic universals just are cognitive universals, and and there may not be any linguistic universals per se. Um, for for some who were, um, you know, say uh, nominalists, um, when they used the term universal, what they meant were general properties. So like. And one good example of that, and it's and and this is something field workers have to know and others have to know, is the difference between generics and universal quantification. So if I say um, languages have verbs, that's a general statement. Uh, if I say all languages have verbs, that's a much stronger statement. The form is is about generals and generalities. The second is about real universal quantification, all languages have this. And so often people use the term universal in the former sense, and they're criticized from the perspective of the latter sense, you know. So um, let's say that Chomsky says that languages have recursion. And I come along and say, here's a language that doesn't have recursion. Well, one response is, I'm just responding to the universal claim, and Chomsky was just making the general claim. So of course there could be languages that don't show it. That isn't the case in this particular situation, however, but um, but it is the kind of thing that causes confusion. So we always have to be uh, we always have to be sure that we are we are understanding the term in a similar way if we're going to argue about it. Yes, definitions are important. Many, many a court battle has been lost on definitions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, I think that to argue about definitions is often pointless, but you certainly do need to agree on what your definition is if you're going to argue about this concept, you know. So in field research, <clears throat> you can go there to study the phonetics of a language. I just want to get a list of all the sounds they make. I'm not even interested in how they put them together in their phonology. I just, let's say, I, that's all I want to do. Um, well, what have you told us? You haven't told us what any of those things mean in that language. And so here's, here's what I would say from a Persian perspective. Um, our general, our initial reaction to something is what Perse would have called firstness. So we have this vague impression of something that's out there. So they seem to talk fast, right? So that would be a, a firstness. A second, a secondness, what he would call a secondness, is when you get something resisted to somebody else, something else. So let's say that I hear a sound, I think, oh, that, that sounds like a P. And then I, I hear a sound that sounds like a T, and I said, okay, so it's not T, and it, it's more like P, and I start to look at the contrast there. That's a that's a higher level uh, perspective on it. It's what Peirce would have called secondness. 
Thirdness is when we can embed it into generalizations and say what P means in the Pitaha grammar as opposed to what P means in the English, in the grammar of English. And this is something that a lot of people miss. Two languages can have ostensibly the same feature, but it means different things in those languages. If you take the example of uh, color terms, so it's been claimed that color terms, certain color concepts are universal and, um, and as color uh, schemes become more complex, they follow the same pattern, no matter what language you're working in. But um, a number of criticisms of that view, which was proposed originally by Brent Berlin and Paul Kay, both of whom I know and respect very much, um, in 1969, um, they're simply collecting data from languages on the basis of what Peirce would call firstness or secondness. They're not looking at the role of the same culture. So you have brown in English and brown in language X. Is brown in language X used to describe all the same kinds of things that brown in English is used to describe? Does it relate to the other colors the way brown relates to other colors in English? Does it figure in the same way in their stories and in their uh, value system, I mean, is brown negative or is it positive? You can't know these things by simple uh, experiments. So if you really want to know what the colors are in a language, you have to go beyond simply a list and you have to figure out how colors operate contextually. And you can only know that once you've looked at the entire language. And, and we've talked about that before, you know, in, in, in Spanish and Portuguese and many other languages, there's a difference between ser and estar. And, um, and, and basically, you can learn all you want to about ser being permanent quality and estar being temporary quality, but speakers have the right to use them any way they want to. And, and you can't figure out how speakers are going to use these things often unless you understand the language as a whole. So, um, you know, I, I, I remember, maybe I've mentioned this example before, when I first got to Brazil and the team Guarani of Campinas won the Brazilian soccer championship, they were the football champions of Brazil, the announcer said, um, Guarani é o melhor time e está o melhor time. And, I had, how could he use the two different verbs to describe the same team at the same time? You know, of course, now it makes perfect sense. They are currently the best team and they are fundamentally the best team. You know, we can say that in English, but the perspective you take on the use of these verbs cannot be governed strictly by this kind of isolated sampling in a dictionary. You have to see them in context and, and you have to, that's why you have to always be talking to native speakers. You can't figure out a language unless you're always talking to native speakers. Yeah, and I think um, uh, for me, another really interesting thing about about the way that language, you know, can be flexible like that is the way that euphemisms kind of appear and then they change over time and then they die. Like, you know, we, we used to say that um, people who were disabled were were crippled. And then the word cripple became, it had all these ne negative connotations attached to it. And so we started calling them maybe disabled. And, and I've heard, well, George Carlin, 
um, talked about this famously. He said that, you know, um, that some people who are really kind of politically correct wanted to call disabled people differently abled. Um, and, you know, so there's all this. And again, this is this isn't just a question of culture. It's also how um, maybe the kind of cultural zeitgeist changes over time. Yeah, I mean, cultures change, values change. A particular word at a particular time comes in pristine and clean, and then it picks up a lot of shit along the way. And it starts getting used and abused in different ways, and people say, oh, that word doesn't work anymore. The PETA hot do that when they change names. They ask me, you still are going by this name, right? I said, yeah. They said, we have to give you a new name. That name's rotten. It's uh, it's deteriorated. We've got to give you another name now, you know? So you accumulate a bunch of experiences in your life. Everybody deserves a fresh start. So take a new name. And words deserve a fresh start. Descriptions deserve a fresh start. So so this is something that um, that that we find a word it doesn't do any good to argue that the word retarded means somewhat slower in one way um when now it means that you're denigrating a person so it's just changed its meaning over time flush it down the toilet in that particular use and start again i mean i think that's just fine i i think there's sometimes a little hypersensitivity about these things um but each new generation will, whether we think it's right or not, they simply will redefine their language in the terms and the terms they want to use. So, um, you know, the, the Pinaha don't use euphemisms. Um, you know, they don't, they don't say I'm going to go to the bathroom or I'm going to have sex or anything like that. They just use the verbs about what you're going to do. And, and why would you, they don't worry about it. We do, we have to have euphemisms and, and heaven forbid that we actually say things the way we perceive them. We have to coat them so as to give minimal offense, whether we're talking about our own bodily functions or whether we're talking about um, our feelings towards someone else, you know, and, and that's not unnatural. I'm not knocking that because it simply illustrates the point that cultural values uh, constrain the language. And the language, as the values shift, the language shifts to meet it. Uh, it is a cultural tool. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, these days the, the company doesn't fire you, they let you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my day, they fired your ass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I remember getting fired as a teenager on multiple occasions. Nobody said, I'm going to have to let you go. They just said, you know, you can't do this job with the shit. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He said, I'm, there's some people cut out to be doctors and lawyers. Some people cut out to be plasterers. I hope you're cut out to be a doctor and lawyer because you're shit at the plasterer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I'm hoping that that the people who, well, some of the people who are listening to this podcast are maybe um, people who are really interested in becoming a linguist or maybe even people who are studying linguistics right now. And I'm wondering if you could sort of explain to them why it's important to get out of the lab and actually get out there and get in contact with languages. There's a great, great quote by Levi Strauss when he first went to do field research in the Amazon about how free from the confines of the, of the uh, uh, stale air of the laboratory, he was able to bring, breathe in the fresh air 
of the jungle and this context and to see it. Language is about human beings and the only way to understand human beings is in an actual environment. Lab work has its utility. I'm not at all denying the validity and the significance of laboratory research, but you can't, and I, that, so field work is important, not only because it helps us to contextualize, but it's like studying all the parts of a car separately, but never having seen a car run. I mean, you've got to see how this all fits together. You've got to see this is the culture, this is the language, this is the locomotive that generates all this interesting cognitive stuff here, but it, it doesn't, it's all a byproduct of the locomotive working together. I think the same thing about the mental, you know, you can't study the mental without studying the physical because ultimately the brain is just part of the body. And if you, you know, if you get, get the flu and you're ill, your brain doesn't work as well. You're not mentally as acute. The body and the brain the brain just is an organ like the kidneys or, or the stomach. And, and language is just an organ of a culture. Um, and you can't understand the language until you see it as part of the culture as a whole. I don't want to know um, the mechanics of, say, WH movement in a language unless I know also when you're going to do that, why you're going to do that, and what the possible variations are that we might not have expected from English. And linguists, initially, linguistic field research was, we don't know anything about languages, we gotta just describe them. And so, I, which I think is very important. You know, so, so linguists who did field research were criticized as butterfly collectors. They just went out there and they, they collected all these pretty little butterflies and they nailed them on, you know, or, or used little pens to put them in white, on whiteboards and label them. And that's not science. Supposedly, that's just taxonomy. It's not science. So, so that led some people away from field research for a long time. This talk about field research only arose in the early 60s, of course, and I won't mention in which context that arose. but. Um, but to me, the most demanding aspect of science, I can't think of anything that combines every skill we've developed in our education more than field research does. So um, let, let's, let, let's get kind of a little bit more specific now. So, so let's imagine that this, this, you know, this graduate is, is about to embark on their first ever field research mission. From a, from a practical point of view, what, what do you recommend that they take with them to survive? Um, okay, so there are a number of things. Um, intellectually, they need to fill their head with every idea they can possibly get from the literature. So they need to read their butts off. Read, 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 study, look at all the ideas. Don't just look at one theory, look at several theories, look at construction grammar, look at uh, minimalism, look at all the ideas that people have and try to keep as much this in, of this in your head as you possibly can. Um, and, and to the degree that you're able to these days, you don't have to carry a bag of books like I did. You know, I used to carry bags of books on my back through the jungle, so I would have them to refer to. Now you can put a whole library on your laptop and have it there to, to look at. Read everything you can about where you're going to go work, not just the people and not just what 
if somebody else has studied the language. Read all that, of course, but read about the country, read about the mores, know the geography, um, read about the kinds of equipment that you're gonna need. Um, what are the likely physical demands? Um, make relationships with local scholars. I mean, that's, that's another thing. You can't just show up like a virus in their country, uh, from your country, and expect that because you have the pure motives of science, they're gonna welcome you with open arms. You've got to cultivate relationships. I had a PhD student at Pittsburgh in, in archeology span many years ago, and um, he did some fantastic work on archeology span in Brazil, um, Michael Heckenberger. And um, when he, he asked, asked me what he should do before he started, and I said, if you can possibly spend six months before you go just getting to know all the other archeologists that work in similar areas in Brazil. So he did, and they love him. And, they, um, and when he went, uh, they helped him in many ways. Um, um, so this is also important. But you know, if you're gonna do a lab work, you don't care what somebody else thinks. You don't have to, you know, I mean, you do, but you don't have to uh, talk to other, all the other lab workers and help ask for their input on your experiment. But if you're doing field research, you do need to get a lot of people's input on your experiment. I would suggest that, um, well, I have a whole lot of suggestions on how people actually do field research. But first of all, you fill your mind with knowledge. That includes also first aid and medical work. You need to know what are the likely emergencies you, you are going to encounter there, you know. Uh, what happens if you split your foot open by stepping on the wrong thing or you're swinging an axe to help the people? And you really don't know anything about axes. You're just trying to be a nice guy. And so the axe bounces off this tree. Some of the trees in the Amazon are like rock hard. And the axe bounces off the tree and comes back and hits, you know, hits you in the leg. Or the blunt end of the axe comes back and knocks you cold. You know, I mean, these things happen, and I've seen them happen. I've seen Peter Ha with, with their legs split open from axes that did exactly that, and they know how to use them. Um, so, so what would you do in that situation? Do you know how to do any suturing? Can you do serious first aid? It depends on how isolated you're going to be. And and is there anything anything which is like really ridiculously practical, like maybe you should invest in, in like a great pair of shoes or, or sunscreen or something like that. Huh? Oh yeah. Okay. So let's, let's say that you're, you're going to the Amazon. What's your checklist? Okay. So you've got limited weight depending on whether you're going by boat or you're hiking in. I've, I've known Amazonian groups that are a 45 day hike one way to get to, and there's no other way to get there. That's amazing. Oh, my God. You can't be carrying hundreds of pounds if you're hiking in 45 days. And I know many groups that were that are a two to three day hike from the closest airstrip or, you know, I mean, you could, if you tried to get a helicopter, that would be about $1,200 an hour. And most field researchers can't afford a $5,000 trip because you have to pay for it to take you out and come back. So you're going to be hiking. So but if you're going by boats or you weight's not such a big issue, I mean, you need to take three changes of clothes. If you're going to the Amazon, you don't need a lot of clothes. They can be really light. You know, I take in um, maybe a pair of Levi's and two pairs of Bermudas and a couple of t-shirts and some flip-flops and then mainly, then maybe some hiking boots. Um, and, and one, you know, 
one one short and shirt is dirty and the other one is is drying and the other one is clean. I mean, it's that sort of thing. Then in medicine, you're going to need to take uh, malaria prophylaxis. You're going to want to take pain medicine from aspirins to things that are, you know, aspirins won't cut it if you happen to cut your toe off. So you're going to need more uh, pain medicine as a backup. You um, you need to take antibiotics. Uh, so you've got to have a medical kit. A medical kit. So I recommend the book for everybody that nobody should go out into the field without the book where there is no doctor. And if you can afford to carry it where there is no dentist. Uh, those are two books that I strongly recommend that everybody have with them when they when they go out there. Um, and and uh, so so then you're going to need to know. So you've got your clothes, you've got your medicine. Uh, you've got your equipment. What kind of field research are you going to do? You're going to need good recording equipment. You're going to need um, uh, a good computer. These things are so much lighter today than back in my day. You know, there were no computers. I, I didn't take a computer. I took an old cassette recorder. Most of the time, my my recording was, it went in my ear and came out my hand on a piece of paper. I mean, there was no way to record everything. You know, you walk around, you got to have a, a sort of waterproof notebook with um, with indelible ink that doesn't run when it gets wet or humid. Um, and you've got to carry this with you at all times. The Pinaha would stop and say, oh, what do you call this plant in your language? And, you know, I only have one word for all the whole, everything in the Amazon tree. And, uh, <laughs> and they would say, we call it X. Oh, wait, you didn't bring your notebook. Right. Oh, we're not going to tell you because you won't even remember it. Um, so, and they're right, you know, if I don't write it down, I'm, I'm less likely to remember it. So you have to be with your notebook at all times. So you've got to have, you've got to have your paper supplies, your computer supplies, your books on your computer. You've got to have a series of very good notebooks that, that can withstand humidity and, and, uh, and indelible ink pens. Um, you know, I took a lot of notes in pencil, and I notice now, 30, 40 years later, that a lot of my initial notebooks are really hard to read because the pencil's fading. And I should have done that in indelible ink, which I was told to do in field methods class 40 years ago, but I just preferred to use pencil, which was a bad decision. Uh, so use indelible ink, never erase, always cross something out because a lot of the time, your first impression was in fact right and you got it wrong the second time. So you want to just say, I can, you want to cross it out so that you can still read it. You say, oh wait, that was right, you know, so cross out the second one, but always leave your previous versions so that you can read them because uh, this is just hard stuff. So you've got, your, you've got your study equipment, you've got your medicine, you've got your clothes. Um, what food are you going to need to take? You could live off what the people have sometimes. I mean, the Pinaha, if I go there and expect them to feed me, they're going to see me as a freeloader. Um, why should they give me any food? Look, food's hard to come by. Why do you think we want to, you know, I've heard, I saw one missionary, in fact, he's still there off and on. He doesn't take them anything. He just expects to be fed. And I said, why do you expect them to feed you? Well, I have all this medical stuff in case they need it. And I said, yeah, most of the time they don't need it, but you have food needs every day, you know, and um, you're going to need to have your own food with you unless you're a great hunter and fisher, and I'm bad at both of them. You know, I, I can't, if I had to depend, I can't fish and I can't hunt. 
Fishing, I don't have any patience, so that's out. I would starve to death. I'd rather starve to death. And then um, um, hunting, um, I make too much noise. The pitaha leave me in the jungle when we go hunting together. They said, okay, you wait here. We'll come back and get you because you make too much noise. And I'll sit, I'll just stand there in, in this isolated part of the jungle, unarmed, hoping there are no big animals around for hours till they come back and pick me up. And if they hadn't picked me up, I'd still be there. My skeleton. <laughs> uh, so, so I buy food and take it in. And, and maybe, um, although maybe kind of related to this, because you've mentioned that you don't feel like um, someone really knows the language unless they also love the food. So maybe, you know, if you're going to somewhere like the Amazon or some other exotic place, you need to, you need to start getting used to those kind of maybe weird foods that you're not used to. Yeah, there's no, there's no way in uh, the United States to get used to eating monkey. Uh, you're not going to eat it up here. But take canned food because very often they like to trade for that. So you do need to eat their food, but you need to eat it in a way that they believe that they are, you're sharing, just like a member of the community would. So if I want to fish, I offer somebody a can of Spam. You know, they, Spam is a huge trade item in the Amazon. It's a great, they love it. Um, and and um, so, so, you know, that Spam is heavy too, though. But so how are you going to get that in? Well, I carry, I carry a case or two of it in and I carry in beans. They don't actually like beans, so that's not a trade item. Uh, but they do like spam. So, uh, but you should try to eat whatever they're eating. You know, they, they'll invite you over for a meal. They're not rude. They, they are, uh, most people that I've worked with are extremely good hosts and very generous. So you eat whatever they offer you, but then you, you need to cook something for them. So I carried in a lot of popcorn every evening. I made big batches of popcorn for the pinaha and they love popcorn. Wow. Just roasted over the fire. Um, Yes, if you have oil in a pan, you can do it over the fire very easily, you know. Um, so you have to, so if you want to do popcorn, though, you have to take in oil in a pan. A lot of the stuff that I did, I didn't do from the very first day. It took me a while. And I would store things in the village for future use. And I would put things in like 55-gallon metal barrels and lock them, not against the pitaha, but against others, not pitaha, who might go in there and, and then store them somewhere. Um, so that when I came back, I, I didn't have to bring all this stuff every time I had, I had stuff stored there. You, you don't need to have all that stuff. You know, you don't need a boat. You can try to canoe in. There's also, people have different philosophies, but if you're working for years at a time in one place, you're going to help your field research if you recognize, acknowledge that you need a few creature comforts and, and you'll need them more the longer you're there. It all, all has to be done in the context of, is this causing any barrier between me and the people? And, and so if somebody from the outside can look in and say, oh, you're eating canned meat and they're going hungry. That's so rude of you. Well, how do you know they're going hungry? What does going hungry mean? Does it mean skipping a meal? Um, they often skip meals just to do it because they've got more important things to do. And so when they do that, you know, they'll come to me and they'll say, why don't you give us all your canned meat? We're all hungry. And I'll say, yeah, let's say I give you all my canned meat. What am I supposed to do? You know, I can't hunt and I can't fish. I'll just have to leave. Oh, okay. Never mind. 
and they you know so th they can they can get food when they need it they just don't always uh they have other priorities sometimes than food so so th this i've got a couple of questions about what you've said so the first one is you've kind of recommended that that people who go in they learn as much as they can about the culture and also i i assume that includes reading what's already been written about the actual language if there exists anything yeah and if there does if, if there is nothing written about that culture and language which makes the field work even more exciting there's something written about other groups in the area you know so um that used to always be the case many field researchers have gone in when there's just no literature on an entire area i find that the most exciting kind of work that i can imagine but let's say that there is, you just need to avail yourself of what there is. Don't be willfully ignorant. But, but, but is, it, is it possible um, that, you know, if you read some of the existing literature, it might kind of, you might develop this kind of bias towards viewing the language in one particular way that maybe is not, not correct, it might lead you the, down the wrong way? That's a very common temptation. So you have to read these things um, and sort of suspect, I mean, it takes a certain amount of arrogance to be a field researcher. I, I think when I go in to work with a group, I've gone in to work with many groups in the Amazon that other people have worked there before me, other linguists, some well-known linguists. It never occurs to me that they will, can figure the language out better than I can. Uh, I know that I'll figure it out. That could be complete self-delusion, but that's my attitude. So I read it and I take it with a grain of salt. I, um, if, if, I, if, if somebody were to read all my, my work on the languages that I've worked in over the years and then read what people wrote before me, there's going to be almost no agreement. I mean, I disagree with a lot of this stuff. It doesn't mean that it's useless. It just means that I don't think they saw the whole thing in context or that they were informed by the bad theory. It's like, you know, Descartes said, set aside everything you know and doubt everything. That's artificial. That's silly. That's one reason that a lot of philosophers think they, this exercise of Descartes is just silly. Um, you can't doubt all the, you can't doubt everything. We all enter every situation with biases. The, the only thing we can do is to subject, is, is to try to reflect on our biases and our opinions and, and be willing to be surprised and put every opinion uh, to the test to the degree that we we can think of it you know I'll go in and think that um, um, you know it's it's I haven't thought about it but that it's going to be hot at night in the Amazon you know and then it turns out that it's cool at night in the Amazon it's just hot in the day that's a minor thing that I would have not thought to doubt I just take that bias in there with me and find out I'm wrong it's the same thing about the language and about the culture so read everything, uh, have a strong sense of purpose and a strong sense of self-confidence. Um, there are two kinds of field researchers, those who are graduate students and those who are you know, full professors, tenured professors. The graduate students pretty much do what their professors tell them to look for. I mean, they just, you know, when Margaret Mead went to the Samoan went to Samoa under the direction of Franz Boas, her correspondence to him was, I have no idea whether I'm doing the right thing or not, but she was on a project 
he sent her to investigate. She eventually came up with her own brilliant conclusions, but her initial guidance was from, like any PhD student, from their thesis advisor. But now as I go out there, I, I wish I were still going out there, people, uh, you know, I, I want to I wanna figure things out. I have my own perspectives. I know, you know, I, I, I'm conversant with almost every major linguistic theory, uh, from minimalism to construction grammar to functionalism and all sorts of things. Um, I don't particularly find any of them uh, overwhelmingly convincing in, in any of the areas. There's, um, and, and most ideas, by the way, have been around for hundreds of years. They just take on little, you know, like meme, which is one of the words I most hate on the planet, um, which I just, I mean, lock, um, uh, John Locke talked about this a couple of hundred years ago. He didn't use the word mean, but he did use signs in the brain that, uh, and, and so semiotic signs, of which means are just signs, um, this, this is how cultures grow in part, but it's not the only components of cultures. It, they're crucial, but, but meme is just another word for sign, which has been around for hundreds of years and in fact has been worked out theoretically much better than meme. Uh, I, you know, it's just, you know, it's like it, it, people invent, so think they're inventing terms, but they're just coming up with new syllables uh, for old concepts. Um, that's not to say that all innovation is impossible in science, but, but most people don't read about things that are old. Uh, they don't. They don't look at the history of their ideas. Um, they don't arm their minds with all the knowledge they need before they start work. Um, you know, I, I tell people to read a hundred pages a day uh, for the rest of your life, and and have it programmed so that you know what you're reading and why you're reading it. Um, and I think that's kind of minimal, but it depends on how fast you read. I mean. I can read a book in a day or I can take a day to do three or four pages. It just depends on how new it is to me and how hard it is. I mean, I can read fiction very quickly because I don't really care if I got the details right. But, um, but in things that are, are going to directly impact my field research, I read very carefully. And that's another thing. When you're out in the field, you need to have literature. You've got to have good things to read that have nothing to do with the linguistics you're doing. Um, they are simply to cleanse out your mind. And I, one of the first bits of advice I got was back when I was at a junior college and I was uh, 20, uh, the professor said, the things you read in the field will impact you more than the things you read in your home. And I found that to be very true. So I tried taking lots of different, you know, modern fiction and novels and detective stories, and I just, I just don't do it. So I only take, you know, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and stuff like that when I go to the field. I mean, I've read all that stuff now, so I'm taking other stuff. But, but I want to read serious stuff that that creates new realities for me and and really causes me to think, but not to think about linguistics, to think about the values and the meanings of life. Uh, that's another thing you have to remember is however hard it is to do field research, it's, it should not be your whole life. 
you have to keep your brain working in other areas. You've got to take time to, to, I just think that if you're an intellectual, you're concerned with literature, art, um, you're both a humanist and a scientist. These are all forms of reasoning that, that are vital to us. Um, and so the number one skill to develop going to the, going to the field is scientific reasoning. Um, how do you interpret the world around you? Uh, Peirce talked about abduction, induction, and deduction. And what do those things mean? And how do you employ them in your science and in, in what you're doing? How often are you surprised? You should be surprised many times a day, every day you're in the field. And if you're not, you're not thinking. <laughs> well, I mean, that... Um... I think to anybody who sort of hears that, it, it sounds very much like you're on the border of philosophy rather than linguistics, you know? Well, I think that you cannot do uh, any science without having some familiarity with philosophy. Um, a lot of people would disagree with me. You know, there are a lot of scientists who, who um, you know, are concerned about mathematics and the experimental control and design and the questions that they have to ask. And that's fine. We need more of that. Um, what I'm saying is that that doesn't have to be mutually exclusive from understanding the philosophical bases of what you're trying to do and, and taking seriously. You know, we need science to be done by scientists, not philosophers. Although, you know, long ago in the past, there was no science. It was just philosophy. So the same people did, did both. Um, but at the same time, the scientist needs to be well-informed by philosophy. And, and I got to tell you that I know a lot of really good scientists and they are, they do know the philosophy and they do. I think it's more likely to find a physicist who can talk intelligently about classical music than it is to find a musician who can talk intelligently about physics. Um, so, um, I, I just think that scientists, real scientists, are interested in lots of stuff. And so they understand the importance of specialization, but they also understand the value of generalization and, and putting things in a context. I, I, we have too many false dichotomies. You know, humanist, scientist, uh, applied, theoretical, um, and, and I think we're disserved by, by these kinds of dichotomies. It makes life simpler, you know. I mean, I know people who are able to do great work and publish in top journals uh, in a few hours' work a day, and then they go out and uh, they do other things. That's fine. Um, I spend all day, every day, reading and writing or doing when I'm doing field research. I'm up in the morning. I get the water from my family. I, I cook breakfast. And uh, then uh, my wife would take over, and then I'm off to do um, I'm off to do field work. I find language helpers. I bring them over. I have a list of things I want to do. I'm working through a manual. I'm working through my own question list. I'm trying to answer the questions that arose for me the day before, and at the same time, I'm making little tapes to dr that drill these things in, and I'm giving them to my wife so that she can put them in her cassette. She made a belt to wear around her waist with this cassette. So she's listening to all this stuff all day too. So by the end of the day, we know the same stuff so we can talk about it, even though we had a different division of labor. 
So, so, so speaking specifically of that, how can how can field researchers um, avoid the observer effect? Like, basically, how can they avoid changing the way that that people are behaving and changing the language they're using simply by being there? Um, that's a good question, and there's no way to completely avoid it, but there are ways to mitigate it, which is to to um, talk to many different people. Don't get in the rut of just talking to the same person. Working with them through their language and not through a trade language is very important to avoiding this observer effect. If I say to you in Portuguese, how do I say John saw Mary? And your language would say John Mary saw, you might still say John saw Mary because you're just translating back what I told you in Portuguese. So you need to use their language. You need to use a variety of language helpers. You need to move from village to village. Um, I record, I usually have um, three small recorders. Um, one, which I, I tape somebody telling me a story, for example. Then I play on that recorder to another speaker um, what they're saying, and I record their corrections or their comments on what this other person said. And then I'll do maybe a third person on a third recorder. So by the time I've done a text, I've got two commentaries on that text. And uh, then I may go back to the original person and play the commentaries. You know, I mean, you have to be careful because it can, it can up upset people to have, you know, this is an interesting cultural change because the second that we introduce even recording, we, we spark editing. Um, so people start to edit one another. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I by and large appreciate editors. I hate them, but I sort of uh, appreciate their task, but nobody likes to be corrected. So, so if you play to the original speaker, two other people saying that they didn't say that right, that could, you have to be careful when, when you do this stuff, but it's still extremely useful. So you need multiple perspectives, multiple people involved, multiple circumstances looking at the same thing. So it's it's very time consuming. There's no quick way to do it. If you go in and speak um, Portuguese in an Amazonian group where they speak fluent Portuguese and they've already say worked with other linguists and they sort of know what you want, you're likely to get, get a bunch of self-confirming BS because they think that you want a paradigm that looks like this. I know people who can think of paradigms off the top of their head because they've done it so much so they give you the paradigm, but you don't want that. You want to discover all this stuff from multiple perspectives and not simply have it regurgitated because then you're just getting what somebody else trained somebody to do or you're getting somebody else's opinion. And uh, so much field research is based on this kind of stuff. I deeply respect field workers. One person can only do so much. All of us have flaws. But a lot of field work is simply very little more than taking out a... a you know, a, a sieve as though you're looking for gold and you've got the shapes, the size of the holes are just right. You've already pre-designed them so that a lot of the stuff you need stays out and only the fine stuff falls through. But you just can't go to the field and think I'm going to look for phenomenon X in this tribe. I mean, physically you can. I mean, people do it all the time, but don't expect to find deep profundity in that type of research. Yeah, I mean, do, do you think that this this problem has been exacerbated by the kind of recent movement towards documenting and 
maybe protecting and revitalizing the all of the endangered languages on the planet? Yeah, here I have another very controversial opinion. I don't find documentation to be a good motive to do fieldwork. Um, we have tons of archives that nobody reads. I mean, I talk to people who run these archives. Oh, we had so many hits. A lot of people are looking at it. I'll guarantee you right now, if you write a 500-page uh, documentation dictionary of a language, um, pretty much nobody's going to look at it. The average person is not going to look at it. The average linguist is not going to look at it because the average linguist doesn't even read grammars. They, they simply use a grammar which should be read like a novel. They read it like an encyclopedia and they just look for the little things they're looking for. They don't care to read the whole thing and see how it fits together. And most grammar, grammar writers don't write it like a novel. They write it like, um, uh, like it's just a list of facts. So I don't find salvage linguistics to be, you know, I've only worked on endangered languages, but that's a purely a coincidence. I work on them because I think that they're theoretically interesting or they hold, they hold secrets. There's, evidence, there's reason to believe there are secrets there we need to find out. And that's what I think about most Amazonian languages. So it wouldn't bother me if Pinaha was spoken by 50 million people it would still be theoretically just as interesting. But the fact that it's spoken by a small group of people means that culturally and linguistically, it's extremely rare and interesting. But I'm not doing my work on Pitaha. And here's something that's changed in the ethics of fieldwork dramatically over the last 40 years. When field researchers went to the field um, as late as the 70s, you know, they collected data. That data was considered theirs. I mean, if I collect the data, I'm the one who got my body out there with malaria and, and life threats and everything. That's my data. I collected it. Somebody says, well, you're stealing the language from the people. How am I stealing that? I, they're still speaking it. You know, they still have it. I didn't take it. I just, um, but, but then there's this feeling that I have a responsibility to put everything up on the web. I put a lot of stuff up there that, uh, that, people could use if they were so interested to check out some of the more controversial claims I've made. But I certainly don't plan to take the next five years of my life, which is what I estimate it would take, to get everything I've collected over 40 years ready so that any Tom, Dick, or Harry can get up there and read it and write a paper on what I wrote. You know, I took the data. If you want to get data, go down there and get your own. Um, that's, an, that's not an attitude that young linguists have today, and their attitude is probably healthier than mine. So I, I don't have any opposition to making your data available, and I can make my data available. It's just most of it's not translated because I know what it says. Uh, so, and I'm, I did it for myself. I didn't do it for others, which there are many people would say that's short-sighted. So these are issues that are ongoing in, in linguistics. So there are, a lot of, there are a lot of ethical issues in field research too. Uh, who are these people that you're working with? Are they simply books on a library shelf? You take one down, you consult it for data, you put it back up and you go about your merry way. What kind of responsibility do I incur working with these people? Now with the Pitahas, I did medical work and all kinds of stuff with them for years which is one reason why I tell people, make a list of the things you wanna do, plan out your day, how many things you wanna do a day, what are your goals for the day, then cut that in half, and maybe cut it in two thirds, because that's all you're gonna get done in the day. So if you think it's gonna take you six months 
if all everything else being equal, uh, it'll take me six months to do this work. Well, everything's not equal, so figure 18 months. Um, it's going to take you a lot longer because you're going to get interruptions all day. The people are going to come by and say, can I have a cup of coffee? Well, yes, you can. I mean, I'm your guest here. Can you come look at my daughter? She just took a fall. And, and yeah, I can. Sure. Uh, can you put me in your motorboat and take me across the river? To, no, you can paddle yourself, you know, but you have to, but you're on call. You know, people might come by at four in the morning to tell you, hey, Dan, yeah, are you sleeping? Yes. I'm going fishing. Gee, thanks for letting me know. And there they go. You know, so these are the things that happen all the time when you're doing, you're doing field research. Um, you might fall and hurt yourself and you have to leave. So you're gone for six months. You know, you've got a six month window and you're sick two of those months. It's just too many things that happen. So field work takes a long time and you can't rush it. For you, what what is the objective of the field researcher like what what is it that that they should aim to actually produce because obviously they could you know they can look at the grammar of the language and the vocabulary and the phonetics but but you know what what is actually an objective that's kind of useful to science you should come back from your field research with um at the very minimum a descript a description of everything you can find going on in that language, from the phonetics to the semantics. Um, in addition to that, you should have a description of the culture. You should have, and, and there are various degrees of granularity. You can have a very fine description, but let's face it, not everybody is going to have the time or the ability or the interest to write, in, to have encyclopedic knowledge that is written down of all these things. So. But you should help us understand how whatever it is that's most exciting to you, um, how it fits in a context. So if you're talking about a new sound that's never been described before, I've just covered three sounds that have never been descri described by any other language in the world. One actually has been found in other languages, but three rare sounds, two of which have never been found in any other languages in the world. Um, how do they fit into the sound system of the language? How does the sound system fit into the grammatical system? Uh, what are the constraints on these sounds from outside? What are the cultural constraints on these sounds or constructions? Um, the, I guess my main point is that there's no way to know before you get there what it, entirely what your objective is. Um, it is something that is formed, you negotiate this <clears throat> with your career goals the people and the circumstances you find yourself in. I may go there wanting to come out with a dissertation on the syntax of this language, but I may find that I can't figure out the syntax. And I tell people, if you're not a good phonetician, you shouldn't be going to the field because everything you do depends on the quality of your phonetics. I mean, it could be that Papa means dad and Taba means dad's uncle, and if you can't hear the difference between P and B, you'll just say it means dad. So you got to have good phonetics. Slight differences in pronunciation can have uh, huge ramifications semantically or syntactically. It could be that a high tone, so in, in Pitaha, if I say he is and I say aga, that means ser. And if I say aga, that means estar. So it's just the tones on the word that tell me whether it's a permanent quality or a temporary quality. 
And it doesn't exactly mean that, but that's pretty close to what it means. And so if I can't hear the tones, I don't even have any business being there. Do you remember, do you remember if you had an objective when you first went to, 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 to live with a Peter Hahn? Yeah, I mean, it was a different kind of objective because I was a missionary. My objective was to know everything about the people and to spend the rest of my life uh, translating the Bible into their language. So I went there to live and die, spend the rest of my life there. So I had no time constraints. Um, a field linguist or a field anthropologist can't take that perspective. That's, you can't, you can, I mean, they could, but probably won't going to, I'm going to have a very good job doing that. And probably not going to be great for the career or for the family or anything like that. So um, the missionary goes there with a very different perspective, but how, but I was glad that in a sense that I went there with that perspective, because when I decided that I was not a missionary, because I didn't believe this stuff, but I wanted to be a scientist, uh, I realized that this holistic approach was a more useful approach, even for the specialist kinds of things I wanted to know. So I wrote my master's thesis on the phonology of Pinaha, from the intonation as, as well as I understood it at the time, to the tone, to the segmental phonology. And then I wrote my PhD dissertation on the syntax uh, and the morphology. And uh, those were my best efforts at those things. But I was interested in everything going on around me at the same time. Um, so if you, if you read my dissertation on the language, which in the, in, in the Handbook of Amazonian Languages, Volume 1, I have an English translation because my PhD and MA were written in Portuguese, but there's a translation of, my port of the first part of my long Portuguese dissertation. The description of the language is found in, in the chapter on Pitaha in the first volume of the Handbook of Amazonian Languages. And um, uh, it, it, it all sort of has to fit together. But I was biased when I wrote that for two things that didn't occur to me that I was biased on. I was biased by what the previous missionary had said about the language because I read what he said. And so some of his stuff, I just assumed he knew what he was talking about. Even though he told me, don't use my stuff, I'm not sure about any of it. Well, I was even less sure than he was, so I tended to use a lot of this stuff. And then I was, I was informed by theory. None of us can be uninformed, I mean, and do anything. We're always informed by something, and I was informed by a good theory. Uh, so I was biased by that theory, as we all will be, and as, in fact, we all should be to some degree. Uh, but, but I made mistakes along the way, as any new field worker will do. So it's not that you're going to go there and not make any mistakes. Field research is a constant, long-term process of revision. You're always changing what you believe. You tell me, you show me somebody who wrote a grammar 40 years ago, and after 40 years more work, wouldn't revise it, and I'll show you an idiot. I mean, you, you're definitely going to have to revise it. You're always learning stuff. You're not always learning stuff. You're not doing field work. Um, I, I've never set foot among the Peter Hahn where I didn't learn that I was wrong about something. And so people ask me, could you be wrong about recursion? Yeah, I could be wrong about everything, you know, I mean, um, but you're not going to find it out that soon. Because <laughs> it's hard to figure this stuff out, you know, and I've told the best story I can. And there's a lot of data there. That doesn't mean it's right. Um, I mean, you know, physicists used to believe in the ether and they found out that, you know, actually that doesn't 
do anything for us. It's wrong. Uh, so these were real smart people, and they were wrong about being wrong is just being human. I mean, we, we didn't have toilet paper 500 years ago. So uh, at least I don't think we did. Um, you know, so so we, we, we're not a very impressive species. I know we like to think we are, but we're pretty much stupid. And we're smarter than, you know, some animals, maybe. I mean, it depends on what we, I'm not as smart as my dog if it comes to finding things in the, in the forest, but I'm smarter than her when it comes to signing my name. So it just depends on what the task is. But the idea that human beings could be beyond error is just silly. We're all screwing up. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, definitely from, 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 you know, my, my field, from a language learning perspective. Um, and, and this was something interesting that I, when I learned when I spoke to Remy Van Tripp from the Sony Computer Laboratories in Paris, because he models um, language evolution in inside computer systems. And he told me that, that when they model um, the machine learning uh, to, to learn languages, if, if these if these kind of AI robot things, if they, if they don't make mistakes, they never actually learn the language at all. And it's, it's, this is a, not a new idea. As you said, a lot of these things are thousands of years old, but you have to make mistakes to learn. It's actually learning is mistakes. Yeah, I mean, and, and we're always doing it. Peirce, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce said that truth is what we no longer need to revise at the end of inquiry when a society, societies have been working on answering this question as long as it takes. And so we're not there yet. You know, if I say X today and tomorrow I have to revise it, then X today is not the truth. Um, however slightly I had to revise it. And if I, the only thing that could possibly be true is something that I know will never ever have to be revised in, in history. Um, and I don't know too many things like that. No, and, and, and that's, that's another thing to admire the ancient Greeks for, because I know that you have an admiration for, for a lot of, you know, the ancient Greek philosophers, especially Aristotle. Um, and, you know, they, they had this, this thing, you know, the dialectic, and the whole kind of, the whole basis of the dialectic was that arguments don't, don't have a beginning and an end. They're the continuous spiral of learning and, and debating and, and throwing away assumptions. And it, I think it's a, a beautiful way to think, really. Yeah, I think it's, the, I think it's um, the only way to think, but we could have a dialogue about that too. Uh, so, so anything that we say is subject to revision and it's subject to challenge. And, uh, you know, the Bible has, has a verb in Proverbs. Uh, I think it's Proverbs 27.1. I'm not sure. It's been a long time since... I've looked there where it says, as iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of a friend, um, which means that, uh, you know, when, when iron comes together, there's sparks fly. So it just means that we're continually coming together and refining our views and, and we sharpen one another, huh. like iron sharpens iron. And that's, that's really what makes us, I don't see dogs arguing about a lot. One could make a case that they do argue apparently over food, but they're not arguing about con concepts. Um, this is an unusually human thing, and, and it's a cool thing. And people who don't argue about concepts uh, are not experiencing full humanity.
<laughs> arguing about politics is like arguing over a plate of dog food. I mean, that's one level of argument, but it's not the same thing as, as arguing one level up, which is what is the responsibility society has to its members. And if you take none, then you're going to vote one way. And if you take all, you're going to vote another way. And if you take something in between, you're going to vote something else. So these are the concepts that require constant um, dialogue. And, and nothing, in nowhere is this um, truer than of field research. Give me a grammar today, and I will revise my own grammar tomorrow. Um, the, I've seen a lot of scientists who have a difficulty publishing because they're never satisfied. Now that's healthy, and I'm glad they're not satisfied because we never do want to be satisfied, complacent. But you got to reach a point where where you say, uh, "Okay, I'm I'm done with this thing. I'm gonna, you know." So somebody comes to me and says, "I found something in your book that um, you said X, but I really don't think X is right." And I'll say, hey, "You're you're right about that. I was wrong." And I'm not insulted by that. I mean, I thought I was right at the time, but, uh, you know, I'm not. So um, not everything in the book is bad because I made a couple of mistakes. My son just wrote me the other day about some uh, statistical error he made in one of his books. And he says, well, if they were ever going to reprint that book, I would correct the error, but they're never going to. So on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean that I've I've mentioned this to you before. I mean that's something which I admire so much about the the scientific, you know, the pure scientific mentality. It's that you know there is no personal truth. There's truth, and you know if you present me with evidence that I'm wrong, then I have to accept it. Yes, the the, the point is where iron sharpens iron is that I may not believe you know. I mean, I'm, I may reject your facts that I'm wrong. It's not that I rule out in principle that I could be wrong. It's just that I'm not going to roll over and give up at the first sign of uh, re resistance because that would also be doing a disservice to the truth. Uh, we, have to we have to duke it out. And then when one of us has won, acknowledge that and move on. Um, it's a fact about science, as it is a fact about most things, however, that dialogue doesn't change a lot of minds. Um, we change our minds because, in my opinion, emotional experiences that cause us to reflect on long-held truths, and we change our minds, then we may draw back, think back on some of those dialogues we've had, and, 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 but in the heat of battle, uh, very few people are gonna change. Oh, right, hell, you're right, and I'm wrong. This just doesn't, this isn't how dialogue works, although dialogue, is no less important because of this mundane human fact of being defensive. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, there's a couple of things I, I wanted to ask you about just before we um, just before we we finish because we're talking a little bit about how humans are, are not perfect and how humans make mistakes. And and I wondered if you could just tell the story that that you you told in your book Don't Sleep There Are Snakes about about the giant rainstorm and your boat sinking in the in the river. Do, do you know the story I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so you know, I, I um, every night, you know, the, the Amazon has a rainy season and a rainier season. <laughs> um, so it, it always rains. Uh, in, the, in the less rainy season, you might go three or four days. The longest I've ever counted is five days without rain. 
and then it will a deluge will come. In the rainy season, it's going to rain two to three inches a day. Period. That's it for the rest for the six months. The river is going to rise 75 feet. Um, you know, 20 meters at least. Um, well, I I tend to before I go to bed at night, I look at my boat because I, my my motor is heavy, and it's attached to the end with bolts, and it's it weighs over 100 pounds. So I can't just it's a 40 horsepower uh, Johnson. So I can't just pick it up, take it you know, uh, and take it up on shore every night. I leave it on the boat. So I check the boat every night, and make sure that it's dry, and then if it starts pouring rain. I get up at three in the morning. I walk down to the boat, you know, looking for snakes and everything that can be looking for shelter out of the rain in my boat. And uh, I bail it out. And one bailing out was usually enough, although sometimes you have to bail it out twice. Well, one, one day, but you do get lazy. So one day I looked at the boat and it was fine. It was dry. And then it started pouring rain. And I was in my hammock and I was really sleepy and I was comfortable. And I thought, It'll be all right. And I rolled over and went back to sleep. And then I woke up in the morning, I was smelling some gasoline. But I didn't think too much about it. And I should have because if you don't normally smell gasoline. Anything different means something different has happened. Um, and some Pitaha women came and they said, which means your boat just uh, went under the, it's, uh, it's way under the water. So, I, I go running out, and where am I, I'm supposed to see my boat, I see the stake that I had it tied to and this strong nylon rope. And then I look way down into the river, and I see my boat just perpendicular, just hanging from that stake with that huge, it's got like 110 liters of gasoline built in into the seats because uh, there are tanks in the seats, and it's got this huge, this very heavy motor on it and everything. So, um all the Pinaha came, they wanted to know if they could help. So we pulled and pulled and we finally got it where somebody could get under the back of it. And, and a woman got in it with a, with a kuya, which is a gourd. And she just was bailing, 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 you know, working, working so hard. Um, you know, it's very moving to see them help you when they have really nothing to gain from it. And you didn't ask them to help. And so they get it up. And so we start rocking it back and forth and, and the water is sloshing out and everything. Then I get in and, bail all the water out. Of course, then it's not going to run, right? Because the motor is full of water in the cylinders and everything. And the gas has been contaminated by water. And that's the only gas I had. So I hate mechanics and I hate all this stuff, but nobody else is going to do it for me. And I can't call somebody to come and do it for me. So, you know, I get my, my uh, little pump that I had made for such an eventuality have to be thinking about this stuff. <laughs> and I put it in the gas tank and I know that the gas that's been contaminated by water is going to look like milk. And the gas that's uncontaminated will look like gas. And so um, I, I put the, uh, the, the uncontaminated gas will be lighter than the contaminated gas. So I put the I put the tube down into the bottom of the tank and I pump out and sure enough, a lot of milk looking stuff comes out. And then finally gas gets there. So I stop pumping. Now I'm down to, and I do it for both tanks. Then I get on the satellite phone and I call my mechanic son-in-law and ask him what to do. And sure enough, he tells me, you're going to have to take the motor apart. And because I think ahead, I have all the parts for the motor with me. 
I always carry spare stuff. So do I like taking motors apart? I hate it more than it can ever be described. But I take it apart. I take it, you know, I take the top part of the motor up to my house. I put down plastic and I take everything apart up there. And I replace what can be, what I have parts to replace. Then I squirt alcohol down into the cylinders and I put it all back together and um, I pull it and it started right up. And uh, if you put too much alcohol, it'll blow up, you know, I mean, it's too, it burns too easy. So you can only put, he told me to take a syringe and I, I forget how many cc's. He said, don't put any more than that in it. And if you put less than that, it's probably not going to start. But I put exactly that in it, started up first time. You leave it running, running, running to dry out. And I'm using the gas and I figure I have just enough gas to get out of here. I'm not leaving today. I'm leaving in a few weeks, but I can't go anywhere while I'm here and still have gas to get out. So that taught me the value of being prepared. It taught me doing things that I hate to do. I am completely ungifted as a mechanic. I hate it. Uh, you know, I hate a lot of things. And it, it turns out that I'm, not, I'm no good at those things. So I hate doing things I'm no good at. And I'm no good at a lot of stuff. Uh, so, um, but I get it working and I'm, I'm really happy about it. And uh, it was the same thing with my power system. I took in solar panels and batteries and voltmeters and I don't like to do this stuff, but you gotta do it if you wanna have electric lights at night. And uh, so it, it compensates you. Um, and you know, I don't take any pride in doing these things, but I do know that I have to be able to do these things to be a field researcher. And I have the confidence when I go out there that whatever piece of equipment I have, except for the electronics and the computers, I can repair. And that if it's not, and, and that I need to be backing up everything else every day, I've got to back up what I've done. And I've got to have multiple backups. Um, so, so field work stretches you far beyond what you uh, ever imagined. Yeah, I, I, well, I think that any, any aspiring field linguist will probably be quite comforted in the knowledge that, you know, the great Dan Everett isn't, you know, out there like Indiana Jones, knowing knows how to do everything. And in fact, is just a normal human. <laughs> yeah, my wife, um, you know, my, my second wife had the opinion since she knew I'd spent all this time out there that I would sort of be like Indiana Jones. Then she realized that uh, any repairs that need to be done around the house, she does them <laughs> because I, I'm no good at them, you know, and I hate them. And I just... You know, I had, I had a linguist with me one time and I tied a knot and he said, how long have you been tying knots? I said, about 40 years. And he said, that's not a good knot. I said, yeah, well, that'll, that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, before we wrap up, what what is the kind of one thing that you want any aspiring field researcher to, to know? It is the greatest honor of anyone's life to go into another culture and language and learn from those people as their disciple. And you cannot limit a priori what you're gonna learn. You have to be open to learning everything and even things you don't know today how to apply. So I would say that to be a linguist is to be a field researcher. I have a very narrow view of this. And to me, a linguist is somebody who can walk with paper and pen into a never before studied language and come out six months later with a grammar. And if you can do that, even though it's a bad grammar and it will be a bad grammar, uh, you're a linguist. And if you can't do that, you're something else. 
that's my very narrow view. But I would sell, say, if you have the chance to do field work, take it as the honor that it is. Um, and I've had the experience of taking people to the field for the first time who are today good field workers who did see it that way. And I've also taken a lot of people who found it too hard, too time consuming, and um, not the way they wanted to spend their free time. So, and I would say for every one that's been successful, there've been, you know, eight to 10 that haven't been. Uh, it's not for everybody, but I think that it's vital to science and vital to understanding ourselves as a species. Thank you.